ago. Tonight we are in Titus. Last week we finished 1 and 2. So Titus 3. Remind them, them being the people who are in your congregation, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hatred by others, and hating one another. So one of the things that Paul is interested in, and it goes through Corinthians, it goes through Titus, it goes through Timothy, he is establishing a church among the Gentiles. The the synagogue among the Jews is well established, and they are known throughout the Mediterranean basin, and they're not controversial. When Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, all of the Jews are just amazed. This is not something they expected. They have no idea how to handle it, how to deal with it, but they recognize that God is doing it. They don't get to change it, but it's really surprising to them. So this idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being abroad among the Gentiles, and there's no real infrastructure to support Gentiles under those circumstances. So they... They've got the Holy Spirit. They believe in God. Uh, In the Baptist sense, they have become saved. So they're trying to find something out about how do we behave? What do we do? What does this God require of us? You know, those kinds of things. And, of course, the books are in the synagogues. So they go to the synagogues, and the Jews there say, sure, you're welcome to come and hear Moses. I mean, no problem. But you're not part of us. And again, this is an important thing. And it's not snarky. This was way before the separation of church and state. The state cared very much about the church. I'm using church with a small c, not church with a capital C. So the church of Diana or the church of Apollo. The Romans cared who you worshipped, and they especially cared if you were fomenting rebellion. So the Jews see these Gentiles and say, yeah, sure, you're welcome to come in and hear Moses, but you're not a Jew. And you don't come under us, and we're not responsible for you, and you're on your own. So these Gentiles have got no infrastructure that will accept them. And that, by the way, is what the letter of the Romans is all about. You've got these four groups in the synagogue in Rome, and there's all sorts of friction. So Paul under these circumstances, is very concerned that these Gentile churches establishing do not get into trouble with the civil authorities. Because if they do, they're subject to be, A, wiped out, and B, to alert the Roman authorities that these people are potential rebels and you need to go after them. Which, by the way, is what happened later on with... uh, the persecution of the Christians, you know, the, the old cliche of feeding Christians to the lions, that really happened because the Christians were regarded as being a dangerous sect. So as Paul is writing these pastoral letters to these churches that he's established, he's very concerned about their behavior. It is certainly partially 
because godly behavior is something to be encouraged among the people of God. That's certainly a true thing. But you have the whole other side of, you guys are a very small island in a very big sea, and if you don't behave yourselves, you won't survive. So it's sort of a combination of those two things. Certainly, as I say, all preachers want people to behave well. I mean, that's sort of part of what you get with a religion is behaving well. But there's more to it than that here. Religion matters. And if you're going to be in a religion, the worst thing that you can be is what we call a Lone Ranger. I mean, you all know these people that I have my vision of how the Bible is written and what it says, and you all don't agree with me, so I can't be in fellowship with you. So I and my family and our two cows are going to go out here and we're going to form our own little church and we're going to worship by ourselves. Phenomena is especially prevalent in Messianic. You'll get somebody that gets a, a wild hair about new moon resets, or Sabbath resets on the new moon. I mean, there's just all sorts of weird out there beliefs and somebody gets a hold of it and nobody else agrees with him. So he goes off and him, his family and two cows and they form their own church. The whole point is Paul here is talking about supporting infrastructure for belief. And it is really unhealthy for you, your wife and two cows to go out and form your own religion because there's nobody to keep a check on you. There's nobody to say when you come up and say, I'm the reincarnated Moses, gee, you're full of cornflakes. And we all periodically need to be told we're full of cornflakes. And spiritual lone rangers never get told that. So they spin out of control and they just keep spinning. And they wind up in just all sorts of weird places. And what Paul is very concerned about here with his new church is that that doesn't happen. He doesn't want the Roman authorities landing on them with both feet and perhaps wiping them out. He doesn't want them driven underground, again, through persecution. He wants a healthy church that has a community and is vibrant, and they care for each other, and they study together, and they knock the edges off of each other. That's what he's looking for. So his emphasis in all these pastoral letters about be well behaved should be taken, I think, partially in that spirit. And as I say, it's also important for a child of God to behave according to Torah, which is well behaved. I mean, there's, there's sort of a two-sided coin there. Back to verse 2. Speak evil of no one. One of the things that we haven't talked about in a while is is Lashon Hara, the evil tongue. Lashon Hara is very destructive to a community. If it gets started and that becomes the way you deal with each other, then the community gets riven with backbiting and that kind of stuff. There's a flip side to that, however. The flip side of that is to be so afraid of committing Lashon Hara that you don't say anything. I've seen both extremes. Oh, I can't talk to you about that. That would be Lashon Hara. Well, you've just told me that there's a problem. How would you expect me to fix it if you don't tell me about it? So there's a balance there. 
and we'll talk about that later. But one of the things Paul is doing is passing on the Jewish understanding of how dangerous and how bad gossip is. So now down to verse 3 again. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's sort of my description of Boulder. Too many scorpions in one bottle. And in fact, our whole society has become that way right now. If you say something that is in the least way offensive to anybody, you get this email or Twitter storm at you trying to drive you off the face of the earth. And that's because people have lost charity. As an example, we used to tell ethnic jokes when I was young. For a while it was Polish jokes. And quite frankly, I think we were much happier when we did that and much healthier. Recognized we were different and teased each other about it. And it was all mostly good nature. It can spin out of control. Certainly that's possible. But mostly it didn't. As my father used to say to me, a closed mouth gathers no fist. So if you went too far, somebody would smack you in the mouth and then straighten you out. And okay, I went too far on that one. And it was pretty healthy. Now, it's not healthy at all because you have self-appointed guardians of the public morality. And the best description of that I have read is it's like living in Calvin's Geneva. In Calvin's Geneva, you were always walking around terrified that you, A, weren't one of the elect, or if you were one of the elect, that you would lose your salvation. Or another place, walking around in Spain at the time of the Inquisition. If I say something just wrong, I could get hauled up before the Inquisition, and I could get burned at the stake. And those things go in cycles, and we seem to be in a cycle like that right now. Choose your period of hypersensitivity and persecution, and this is every bit as religious as that was, even though most of its practitioners are atheists. But the religious impulse is very strong. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works alone by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Yeshua Messiah, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A bunch of things there. Certainly, salvation by faith and not works. I agree with that. The other one is becoming heirs. And one of the things that Hebrews says, and when we get to Hebrews, which we may do next week, that's one of the big points that Yeshua, being a brother, through his sinless death and the acceptance of his sacrifice as witnessed by his resurrection, has given all of his brothers, us, the right to become children of God. And Paul is just sort of sliding by and alluding to that here. But the point is, if you are a child of God, then you become an heir. And that means that you have an inheritance. I believe that the inheritance that we have laid up for us is in the world to come. So Paul just sort of alludes to that and skates along. He doesn't elaborate on it here. We'll get much more of that, uh, both in Ephesians and Hebrews. 
mercy is the same as taking pity on someone. You see someone who has a condition and you work to alleviate that condition, that's mercy. He's earned a punishment, you decide not to punish him, that's mercy. Grace is very similar and that's extending favor to someone just because you want to, whether he deserves it or not. They're very similar. One is favor, the other one is abrogation of a punishment, I believe. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what I've just told you is true, and I want the people who hear it to do good works. So the idea that being saved by grace is the end of the road is not correct. The whole purpose of being saved is so that you can do good works. And the other thing he says is these things are excellent and profitable for people. One of the things that we have probably not said in a while, but it's worth saying again, is you don't have to do Torah, you get to do Torah. And the idea there is if you live your life according to Torah, since God set up his universe according to Torah, your life will go well. So doing the things that Paul is suggesting here is not only commanded by God and is a matter of obedience, it is also a matter of enlightened self-interest. So when he says it's profitable for people, what he's saying is get these folks to do this stuff because it will go well with them. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And again, what I am inferring there is he's earlier told them not to pay attention to those of the circumcision party who are stirring up dissension. And one of the things that I am assuming is going on when we're talking about genealogies and so forth is things like who's a Jew, what's your lineage. I mean, that's, that's a big deal in the Bible. And it's an important concept. And what I think Paul is saying here is don't get hung up in that kind of stuff. Instead, focused on Yeshua and just doing the things that he would call you to do. It's sort of like the thing we talked about with the two houses. There are a whole lot of people in the world that I believe are Hebrews that can't prove it simply because they're members of the ten tribes, and God has said that he hasn't lost any of them, and he'll get them back. But if you listen to a one-house rabbi, he will say, yeah, 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 you Gentiles are welcome to be here, love you, but you're not one of us. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. So again, this goes back to speak evil of no one. Ignore these people of the circumcision party that are floating around. Basically, or ignore anybody that is trying to scatter the sheep. And scattering the sheep, the circumcision party can do that. But we can do that ourselves. And this goes back to the discussion I had earlier about Lone Rangers. Somebody just gets fixated on his interpretation of a passage of scripture and if you don't like the way he interpreted it we can't have fellowship and very often they will try and warp the church around to their perspective 
which will cause dissension and division, which is why in God's economy, there is somebody responsible for a church. That's what Ray and I are. We're the ones who are responsible. And we elect elders to keep us in line. But we have had in the past, very rarely, thank God, occasions when we've asked people to leave because they were causing dissension and division. We've had people come in with an agenda. They usually don't last very long. But the point is, in God's economy, every group of sheep has a shepherd. And then you have somebody that watches the shepherd to make sure he doesn't go off into the bush. So nobody is an authority unto himself in God's economy. There are checks and balances everywhere. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Paulos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faiths. Grace be with you all. Let's back up verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What is the not be unfruitful referring to, do you think? So you're saying that the witness of somebody doing good works may draw people to the faith. I would agree with that. What I will suggest is also being talked about here is there's a Jewish phrase called timtum halev, which means a stopped up heart. So someone who is not devoting himself to good works develops a stopped up heart. And what that stopped up heart does is makes that person unfruitful. What happens when you start doing good works is your heart opens up and it becomes like the good soil in the parable of the sowers and it brings forth fruit in addition to the example that you might get of people seeing you do good works saying, wow, that's cool, let, let, let me go join that group. That's certainly part of it. But the other part of it is, as you get your heart open and flowing, you will become fruitful in lots of areas that aren't even related to the idea of doing good works. An open and flowing heart is fruitful of itself and will cause fruit to appear in other places. <laughs>